Our Father, we pray that you would prepare us today for for persecution. Uh, teach us to be sustained in, in trial, we pray. And uh, when that day comes to sustain us, we ask. Uh, we pray that you plant within us the, that supreme value of being a Christian and of our union with Christ and of that indwelling of the Spirit and of our being sons and daughters in the covenant people of God this morning. Father, we pray that you teach us about our identity which, which surpasses all of our other identities. We pray that you do these things in us by your word and by your spirit this morning. In the name of Jesus, we ask you, amen. Let's stand and read God's word together. First Peter four twelve through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Amen. Maybe see. John Bunyan was a, a Puritan preacher, and uh, through a variety of political goings-on in the uh, England and in the uh, Anglican Church, he was imprisoned uh, for 12 years. I'm sure you all know that story. So he was ultimately imprisoned for preaching. They told him to stop, and he wouldn't stop, so they put him in, in prison. And uh, as a father, he was concerned that he couldn't provide for his family, and he even expressed concern he had a blind daughter, and especially that he couldn't be with her and there for her during his imprisonment. Uh, that's a extraordinary, uh, difficult uh, suffering. Um, and it's interesting what it produced. It produced, uh, among many things in his writings, uh, this poem. He says, I am indeed in prison now, my body in body, but my mind is free to study Christ, and how unto me he is kind. For though men keep my outward man within their locks and bars, yet by the faith of Christ I can mount higher than the stars. Their fetters cannot spirits tame, nor tie up God from me. My faith and hope they cannot lame, above them I shall be. So it's interesting, it seems like uh, John Bunyan 
seemed to almost esteem, seemed to almost glorify suffering. He seemed to esteem his suffering. And in doing so, he kind of joins the, the tradition of the apostles and many throughout church history. You know, think of the apostles who rejoiced to be counted worthy to be flogged in 39 times. Or it's, it's funny, you know, through, throughout church history, many have died, many have suffered horrible things for their faith. And rather than causing Christians to run away or cause us to be discouraged, we in fact write books about these things. We read about them and they encourage us. And the more persecution comes to us, the more, more Christianity grows. You know, think of Paul and Silas in prison. What do they do? They start singing hymns. John, the, John Bunyan starts writing poems of joy in prison. So where does this strange outlook on suffering come from? I think it ultimately comes from the value of being a Christian outweighing the value of everything else. The value of being united to Christ is so much better than earthly treasures. Suffering is something to rejoice in in the scriptures. And it is because, at least part of it is because it proves our rightful ownership of this name that we call Christian. And it proves that we get to own that name in three ways in this text. Uh, The first is that suffering shows our union with Christ. Secondly, it shows us the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us. And third, suffering shows us our status as covenant people. So union with Christ, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and our status as covenant people. So first, being a Christian is valuable because we are united with Christ, and and suffering shows us this fact. Peter here sets forward this uh, dichotomy in verses 12 and 13. This this dichotomy between surprise on the one hand and rejoicing on the other. Verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So this to me is a difference between a temporal and an eschatological worldview. Shock or surprise at suffering says, I can't believe this is happening to me. God is supposed to protect me. He's supposed to take care of me. I am a child of God. Aren't I supposed to be well off now? Isn't he supposed to take care of this problem rejoicing on the other's hand says I am united to Christ I participate with him in his suffering and therefore I get to participate with him in his glory that's good news shock says God has abandoned me rejoicing on the other hand says God is testing my faith to, to prove it, to purify my faith. Turn back with me to chapter 1, and we'll start in verse 3. And I, notice how, 
how eschatological Peter's worldview is, how focused he is on the end of all things. Chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So did you notice how focused he is on the, on the end of all things there? Everything for him moves heavenward. Everything, not, Nothing is stagnant. Everything is always flowing toward that blessed hope. So when he says in, in chapter 4, don't be surprised, but rejoice when you are tested, he wants us to think eschatologically according to our relationship with Jesus. For those of us who are united to Christ, suffering has the, these inter- eternal implications with immediate impact right now. For us to rejoice in suffering, though, I think the value, as I said, of being joined to Christ has to outweigh everything else. We have to prize our future inheritance above our earthly treasures. Which means that union with Christ can't be this heady, mysterious doctrine that we just talk about and read about in systematic theology books. It has to be something that impacts our day-to-day life and our Christian experience. This has to be valuable to us, that I am united to Christ. Peter is teaching us here to rejoice in suffering because it shows us that we are indeed united to Christ. He says, insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory revealed, which we've studied elsewhere, means we too get glory. We too share in His glory. Not only that, but we are united to Christ through the Spirit. We are indwelt by the Spirit. And suffering shows us that also. Uh, Verse 14, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. So suffering shows us where we belong or maybe better, to whom we belong. Suffering for Christ's name uh, does not earn us this, the Holy Spirit. He's not saying that. But rather, suffering tests, it proves, it confirms the active presence of the Spirit within us. The Holy Spirit, as we read in Ephesians, is uh, that down payment. You know, we're always waiting for Jesus to come back, but we have the Holy Spirit as this down payment as we await our future inheritance and glory. He is that, that present reality that Christ promised us in John chapter 15. Now John 15 
Jesus tells his disciples, Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than excuse me, than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. And then he says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So he is that, that present reality, that Helper. We have the Helper now. And Jesus says that the world does not know God. He says in chapter 15, verse 21, the world does not know God, and that's why they persecute. But we, conversely, as we read in First Peter, have the Holy Spirit resting upon us. It's a stark difference between the world that they have and what we have, and what Peter calls blessedness, that we are blessed we suffer because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon us. That is blessedness. The blessedness by the Holy Spirit, knowing God, having new life in the Spirit, knowing truth, being steadily more and more purified and made into the image of Christ. And we need to remember that, I think, amidst all the confusion in the world about the Holy Spirit. I had a guy tell me once, Zach, you know a lot about God, but you, you haven't experienced the Holy Spirit. And I think what he meant by that was I hadn't experienced miracles and very, these various ecstatic gifts. I think the true manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the Christian Christian's life is this standing firm under insults. That is a true manifestation of the Holy Spirit. And we will be insulted for the name of Christ. And it hurts. You know that, that old saying, as your kids, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's not true. Words probably hurt worse than sticks and stones, if we're honest. The only way we stand firm under that pressure is the power of the Holy Spirit. And thus, persecution serves as a blessing because for us it proves the presence of the Spirit in our lives. When we endure insults, when we hold up and bear up under malignment, we can rejoice because we with confidence know that we would not have done so otherwise if we hadn't had the Holy Spirit. So it's an evidence to us. And thus we're blessed when we're persecuted. Now thirdly, he shows us that we are covenant people. Suffering shows us that we are covenant people. Verses 15 through 18. And I'll just read uh, for now 15 and 16. But let none of you suffer as murderers or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. 
Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Peter's pleading with us to suffer decidedly as Christians, not, you know, murderers and thieves get the same penalties as Christians a lot of the time. Just look either side of the cross and you get this picture. It's not the pain and suffering itself that brings us blessedness. It is the name that brings us blessedness. The name for whom we suffer. That derogatory name as it was Christian, he says. If anyone suffers as a Christian, that name is to be worn as a badge of honor. I like the way Clowney uh, paraphrased this verse. He said, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. That is a badge of honor, the name Christian. And this is the second time he mentions the name. First, in verse 14, the name of Christ. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. And here, if anyone suffers as a Christian... There's a lot, I think, to a name, as we talked about in Sunday School at length. Um, the name, for example, Cruz, carries with it certain things, certain traditions, certain histories, and certain physical traits. There's many positives to being named Cruz, and there's some negatives. But I know this, that for better or for worse, I'm a, a Cruz, and I would never, I don't think, deny that, even on the, our name's most tarnished and embarrassing points. <laughs> but then it, it's a temptation for us to be ashamed or to hide that greater family name, Christian. Why is that? That, that is what it is. It's our greater family name. We're adopted, and therefore we, we can bear that name, Christian. We're part of the family of God, the family of Christians. And it is our greater family name. I don't know for sure, but I don't think I'll bear the name Cruz on the other side of glory. But I know I'll bear the name of Christ. So, do not be ashamed, but wear the badge of Christian boldly. And praise God that you have it. And the reason why, he says, is a little bit off-putting at first, but he says that it's judgment. Verses 17 and 18. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So this is kind of, I think, an unusual argument. Almost it seems like I mean, is he, is he saying, sure, you have it tough, you have some judgment, but it's not as bad as them, at least, you know? That's, that's chipper, that's motivation. I think there's a lot more to it than that. I, I believe he, again, wants us to think eschatologically. He wants us to, to think, as he said in verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. This is how we're supposed to think. Uh, listen to some of these... Scriptures. I think that he's alluding to some of these um, along with some scholarship. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 5 and 6. This is in the context of 
Ezekiel's receiving this vision and he goes around and sees all these abominations in Jerusalem. They're worshiping the sun and all these horrible things. And then God calls these men to bring judgment to the people. And he says, And to the others he said in my hearing, Pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Kill old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women, and touch no one whom on whom is the mark. And begin in my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the house. You can kind of see there this beginning of, there's a certain class of people with the mark who are not touched, but he's beginning in the household of God. He's beginning at the sanctuary. Uh, Malachi 3 We have a similar judgment. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. So you can see some of that imagery reflected in our passage about this fiery trial that comes upon us to to test us. And it begins here in the house of Levi and and here in 1 Peter in the house of the Lord. And finally, a few pages back, Zechariah Zechariah 13, uh, begin in verse 7. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perished, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver. And, the, and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. And I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. You can see there, his, the covenant promise is pre- present. Also, this imagery of refining by fire. So I believe that he's alluding to these because he's beginning this judgment now in the household of God. It begins with the people of God. Um, it kind of serves two purposes, I think. One is to distinguish the people of God from the, the you know the gold from the dross, and the other is to, to purify the gold itself. So I think this judgment beginning in the household of God on the one hand separates the sheep from the goats and on the other hand purifies us as his children. Clowney had a good quote here. He said, The fire of judgment that will come when Christ comes already burns in the sufferings that Christians endure. Yet how different is the purpose of the fire in God's house from the fire of the last judgment? God's fire in his temple purifies the faith of his spiritual priesthood. You can kind of hear the allusion to to Malachi 3 there. But that faith, more precious than, than refined gold, God will keep them for the glory to come. 
The flames of persecution, therefore, are a token to Christians of the faithfulness of God, who will deliver them from the wrath to come. Peter goes on here, and he quotes from the Septuagint of uh, Proverbs 11.31, verse 18, And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So I think it's probably better to say, maybe a better translation or interpretation, to say uh, the righteous is saved with difficulty. The, The gate is narrow, that type of thing. It is hard. It's not that the outcome of our salvation is uncertain. Like we, the righteous barely squeak through, and we don't know if we're going to make it or not. But rather, the the road getting there is difficult. And if the salvific road is painful, imagine he seems to be saying the pain of of the damned. Peter's purpose here in verses 15 through 18, I believe, is to show us that we are indeed members of God's family, members of the covenant people of God, that we get to say like the people in Zechariah, God says of us, we are his people and he is our God. We are not of those who are are being cast off, but rather we are of that, that group who is being refined. I think it's tempting when we see our suffering to join the psalmist who, you know, who notices that the wicked are fat and happy while we're, we're suffering. But we have to ask ourselves, first of all, what does being cast off look like? What does it look like to be one of those who's cast off? And what does sonship look like? To be cast off, I think, you know, spare the rod, hate the son, right? On the converse, sonship, he chastises those whom he loves. I always think of Jonah when I think about being cast off. It's not that God just smote him right then and there, but for a while he let him go. He let him drift. I think that's an image of God sparing the rod, as it were. So in these days where judgment is being administered in the household of God, we we rejoice in persecution because it's that which pers- uh, purifies our face, faith and it proves our sonship, our membership in the covenant people. Finally here in verse 19, Peter arrives at kind of what's he, what he wants us to do with all of this. Verse 19, Therefore let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So that word entrust is kind of a, a banking word. It's like deposit. Deposit for safekeeping. Entrust your souls. Deposit your souls with God for safekeeping while you are enduring persecution and suffering. Don't try to take the, the well-being of your soul into your own hands, but place it in the hands of the, the one who made you. If he made you, he can sustain you. So entrust your soul to him. Don't let suffering shake your confidence in him, but trust him. And so we press on in doing good in the face of insult because we know that we are suffering, as he says, in his will. And it's in his will, not, of course, because he delights in our pain or anything like that. We're trying to make us atone for our own sin. Christ has done that already. But he has united us to Christ. 
And so we follow Christ as our elder brother in his suffering and ultimately to his glory. The Spirit rests upon us and he is purifying us as his people. So I think that there's nothing greater in value than being a Christian. That derogatory name, Christian, nothing greater. Wear it as a badge of honor. Because there's there's no greater treasure than God himself. The suffering of persecution for that name badge, Christian, proves in us our stake in the family of God. And therefore, we're not surprised when persecution comes and we're not ashamed, but we rejoice because we know whose we are. Amen. Amen. Well, we will stand now to sing, Be Still My Soul, hymn number 689.